Hello, welcome back to Being Black with Camille Smith, and today we are welcoming Camille Bethune-Brown. This episode is sponsored by Women Who Engineer, the epicenter for women in and aspiring to be in STEM. Follow them on Instagram for a daily dose of women kicking ass. Camille is a queer, disabled, Black history curator working at the intersection of race and disability studies. She's an expert of late 19th and 20th century African-American culture and historiography in the relation to the emergence of museums and memory making. Camille offers spirited conversations creating inclusive stories about the past. She believes in thought-provoking conversations that force Americans reckoning with this collective past. Throughout Camille's education and experiences, she's had the opportunity to share inclusive history and culture with a wide diverse audience while working with some of the most influential institutions and talented professionals in the field. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Um, and to give the viewers a little bit of background, um, I am an avid follower of Anti-Racism Daily. And for those of people that don't know who that is, um, it's basically a really, really huge Instagram platform that um, puts out basically anti-racism education on a regular basis. And um, they keep you up to date with current events that are happening. And it's just an overall very great platform to keep up to date on these types of things. And for Black History Month, they had a basically an email series that they had um, 20 Days of Black History. So of course I signed up, it was a free uh, newsletter that they put out every single day uh, towards the evenings. And the first day of Black History Month, I got the email, was super excited about it and scrolled down and I was reading it. I was like, hmm, I, like, I wonder who like makes these, right? And I scrolled down and I saw Camille's name. So I was like, what? That's my name. That's cool. Um, then I decided to be a little bit FBI and tried to find her on Instagram. I was lucky and I did find her and I followed her. And then I took the leap of faith to actually talk with her today. So um, again, I'm super excited to be talking with you. And I am so excited to hear what valuable information and just about your experiences as a whole. So instead of me rambling, I'm going to ask you the first question. What does being black mean to you? Oh, wow. Well, so first of all, thank you so much, Camille, for the lovely introduction. Um, I'm glad that you um, loved my work with Anti-Racism Daily, and I'm glad that it just spoke to you on such a deep level. Being Black to me is um, a lived collective shared um, experience that at its core really just means um, to me the melanin that unites all of us. Uh, being Black is not just how I appear on the outside, but it is every fiber of my being on the inside. It is uh, from the way I wear my hair to how I speak to really how I move about in, um, in the world uh, and in, in time and space. And particularly when I think of blackness, I think of it as sort of a liberatory celebration of just a variety of, of shades and um, collective experiences that are here to really like just draw people in. You know, there's something about the this blackness that is uh, not only inviting, but it makes people want to like get up, get excited, and learn a little bit more um, about it. Particularly people, you know, that aren't black. Uh, but even within the black community, there's just something about blackness that um, it's it's similar to like a, a warm hug. You just want to like be pulled in and held close and and embrace the culture and embrace the the feeling within. And when did you first find out that you were black? Do you have like a kind of yes. So I jokingly, I jokingly like to say that I didn't realize I was 
black <laughs> per se, uh, probably until my like late teens. And the, the reason I say that, I mean, obviously I knew I had melanin in my skin, um, but I, I grew up in a mixed race family and, you know, I'm a older millennial and I like have this idea that racism was a thing of the past that, hey, we had elected President Obama, like it was a new day. Um, and I, I just didn't have a clue. Like I truly, you know, I, I grew up um, actually right outside of Annapolis, Maryland, and it's a very, very, very white, white area. And I never felt treated differently until I um, went to high school and my later high school years is when President Obama was elected. And that was like the first time that like, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Um, you know, I'm starting to hear comments like, uh, well, of course you'd vote for him because you're black from like white classmates or like, um, or, oh, you're so articulate. You're so, um, you know, just language like that. And that was truly like the first time that I'm like, okay, wait a minute, we're not in this post-racial where we don't see color kind of a thing. And it's so funny because at that time when, when I started to kind of, when the switch went off, um, I would not have said that those comments like, oh, you're so, you speak so well, things like that. I wouldn't have said that those were racist statements. I was like, I don't want to say I took it as a compliment, but I, I, I just didn't have a clue. And as time went on, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, like, let's unpack this. Let's unpack these microaggressions and why certain language, why certain white folks feel like it's okay to say that. What do they mean when they say that? Why do they think this is a compliment? Um, and so, yeah, I like to say that I realized I was black uh, or how society viewed me, um, you know, like 16, 17, 18 years old. And then from there, I like, I went to college, I became uh, an African-American history major. And I like to say that I then dove headfirst into all things blackness. <laughs> so how was it growing up in your area? You talked a little about you grew up near Annapolis. Yeah. Growing up and how did that kind of change as you um, just grew up or when you went to college? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, I come from a military family. And so, you know, moving a lot, things like that, meeting, like I've always had a very diverse group of people, um, friends, things like that, uh, you know, parents, friends around me. So I always considered myself to like be pretty open-minded and, and really just, like I've always known people of different backgrounds, but I, in the same regard that I kind of didn't, I accepted people as they were, I just had this idea that, hey, like I'm also being accepted as I am. And it's so funny because growing up in a predominantly military environment, like it tends to be very like conservative leaning. And so you have like my black identity along with a very conservative sort of neighborhood, um, and that I'm gay. And so just like all of these things, like on top of each other, really created this sort of experience for me that um, I think is quite unique and kind of trying to like escape out of this bubble of like whiteness almost. Um, and so, you know, fast forward to when it was time to go to college, I was like, well, maybe I'll try going to an HBCU. Uh, let's like, let's, 
it's, it's so silly to say this now, but I thought at the time going to an HBCU would teach me how to be black, like how to be, how to like, which sounds like wild, but one thing that, you know, I don't think is often talked about is sort of the experience of black women, black girls who grew up in these like predominantly white suburbs um, and sort of like their experiences and their identities with that. And, you know, people thinking that you're just like this whitewashed black person. And so when it was time to go to college, like I was like, well, I'm gonna go to an HBCU. I'm gonna learn to be black. And, and so um, my freshman year of college, I, um, <clears throat> I went to uh, an HBCU and I like to say that I had a lot of fun there. So much fun that I, <laughs> I had to withdraw at the end of my freshman year because I had too fun of a time and my GPA suffered. Um, uh, but in that experience of going to an HBCU, I, I took my first like African-American history class and it was it, like, and it was so eye-opening. I, you know, cause in school, when you hear about black history, you hear that we were once enslaved, that we were happy enslaved people. Um, and, and that's like the watered down version, but there's so much more to our history than that. Um, and so anyway, so I ended up transferring and, and subsequently graduating from uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County as an Africana studies major. And um, I just, and my specialty is black women's history. That's what I've always loved. Um, 20th century black women's history, uh, like reading about it, writing about it. And when I went to grad school, I also was a history major and just kind of like kept on with it. Uh, but it's just so, it's so funny because, um, you know, even being a historian now in, in kind of the field, when I tell people that I specialize in African-American history and not just African-American history, but, but like black women's history, they're like, oh, well, duh, that makes sense. But I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I could have picked something else. It just so happened that when I took these classes in college, like a spark went off in my, in my head. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I like black women, we are the backbone of this country. We built this country, you know, like, and, and, and no disrespect to black men, but like without the the caretaking of black women, without our sacrifices, our labor, like this country would not be where it is today. So it just like spoke to me and I, I stuck with it. And, um, you know, moving forward, I just, um, you know, always did exhibits related to African-American history or, or women's history um, and, you know, now I work as a historian. I, I like to say that I am a historian who specializes in the museum field, um, simply because there are some historians that like, they might work in a library, they might um, work for a school system, they might be a professor, but I specifically focused in on museums because I wanted to bring our stories to the public um, and have other like black little girls be able to look at my exhibits and say like, wow, I see myself represented, represented here. And that's so important too, because I think the first time I ever saw or felt as though I saw myself in a museum, and I love museums, yeah. <laughs> is when I went to um, the African-American Museum in Washington, D.C. Yes, yes. And I spent, I think I spent the entire day there. Mm -hmm. 
and like it wasn't like a sometimes people go to museums and like they're talking to their friends and they're talking with whoever I was quiet like I was legitimately reading everything um so that's very cool to hear but uh my last question for you is do you have any advice for your younger self so advice to my younger self um number one like don't spend so much time worrying if I'm making the the right career choice. Uh, And the reason being, you know, when you tell people you want to be a historian or, or do something in the humanities, the arts, everyone's like, how are you going to get a job? Like, you're not going to make any money. And we live in such a capitalistic society that like everybody acts like money is everything, but peace of mind and happiness in your job is far more important than any amount of money. And I remember being in college, you know, going back and forth between uh, pre-law political science and being a history major. And my parents were really, really pushing for me to like go to law school. And if I'm being 100% honest, every now and again, they still are like, Camille, you know, it's not too late, you know, plenty of lawyers, like people go to law school in their 30s and stuff. And I'm like, nope, 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 it's too late for me. but uh, you know, so I would say like, don't don't worry about what everyone else um, says. And then number two, to a second uh, piece of advice that I would tell my younger self, really focus in um, on finding mentors and people who you kind of see um, who who kind of have the career um, that you see yourself having. So, for example, I was fortunate to grow up outside of DC and, you know, DC has tons of museums um, and quite quite a number of like black curators. Um, And so early on, like when I was in college, I'm like, okay, like this particular person, let me reach out, um, send an email and say, hey, like I'm loving the work you're doing. I'm loving your research. Like, do you have the capacity to take on a mentee? And uh, and really take the time to nurture that relationship and um, and and learn from them. Uh, I I would not be where I'm at today in my career if it hadn't been for all of uh, you know the people that mentored me along the way that would take the time to talk with me and say, hey Camille, like this is this is where you shine at, and this area is you know where you where you struggle at um, in in doing the work in in museums. Uh, but yeah, I would I would say that, and also just if you don't see um, if you don't see a career or like something that you're passionate about, build it yourself, create it yourself. So, for example, um, I'm particularly passionate about disability history, and I like to think about the intersections between blackness, gender, and disability all in one. And there isn't really like a ton a ton of information about it, let alone um, exhibited in museums. And so it was particularly important to me um, when you mentioned the Anti-Racism Daily 28 Days of, of Black History Virtual Exhibit, it was important to me to like bring those kinds of stories to the forefront and say like, hey, disabled voices um, are part of Black history. They're part of co- the entire collective his- history of the United States. Um, and so, you know, I said, well, there, there aren't enough stories about this. I'm just going to like I don't say create my own, but like really do the work to like bring these conversations to the forefront. Um, you know, we can always chart our own course and and just, you know, and the the thanks, the gratitude that you get when you just do this kind of work, it, it I mean, you can't put a price on it. It's just so fulfilling to me when people tell me, hey, like, uh, you know, I didn't know that 
there were disabled folks in the Black Panther Party, for example. They're like, I just didn't know. And I'm like, yeah. And like, they were pretty instrumental in various like disability rights issues uh, back in the day. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for answering those questions. And I'm super excited about our conversation today. Um, today we're going to be talking about being Black and knowing your history. Um, so I definitely want to tap into, you talked about when you took your first African-American studies class, you kind of had that spark. Yeah. Um, so why, you know, turn it into a career, if that makes sense? Sure. So um, growing up, kind of like you, I, uh, I visited a lot of museums and um, I, I like to say that I knew I wanted to be a historian before I actually knew I was going to be a historian. So my earliest memory of like being involved in a like history space uh, was visiting Colonial Williamsburg, which for those who kind of aren't from the East Coast, um, look up Colonial Williamsburg. It's it's basically a place where um, white folks dress up like it's the 1800s and reenact. <laughs> now that I'm older, I'm like, ooh, this is a little problematic. But at the time, <laughs> at the time, I I was I just thought it was cool to dress up. Um, and so I remember visiting this place at like eight, nine years old, and I'm like, oh, this is like, I didn't know all of this existed. Um, and I just remember like tucking it away in the back of my brain, like, okay, people can do this for a living. But I didn't know that was like being a historian or like doing history work. And so fast forward to um, like high school, I just like took social studies. I had my first um, black social studies teacher in high school. Uh, and kind of hearing her take on U.S. history, I'm like, oh man, like this is just so eye-opening. Um, you know, learning about like women like Billie Holiday uh, or Nina Simone and how they use song um, for activism uh, for the black community. Just was like, okay, this is like this is really interesting. I think I want to do this. But still, then I didn't know you could be a historian. I just thought I'll be a teacher. Um, and I and I there's nothing wrong with being a teacher, but I thought like that was gonna be my, my calling. And so when I went to college, I had entered college as a pre-law political science major because I was like, well, if you like history, maybe you go to law school, maybe, maybe you go do that. Um, and it was my like first week of college, I had a professor named Dr. Woods and he assigned us uh, a paper to read on the, the Willie Lynch letters, which we, we now know has been, um, debunked as, you know, there's no necessary historical accuracy to it. But essentially, um, the the premise of the Willie Lynch letters at that time were, um, uh, it was a document that talked about how um, enslaved folks were to be, you know, uh, bred uh, for servitude, beaten, all sorts of stuff, just really harmful things. And my professor said, read it, um, write a five-page response paper to it. What are your thoughts? How does it make you feel? And at that time, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a, a whole side of like um, slavery in this country that I just didn't, I just didn't have a clue. Uh, and so, and so that was kind of like the first little flicker of a spark. And subsequently, as that semester in that particular course went on, um, you know, I learned about sort of comedic studies, how like for some um, African-Americans, 
They had kings and queens and other forms of uh, dynasty and things like that in our past. And it was just like, wow, I had no idea any of this existed. Um, and I just, I remember thinking if this is new to me, well, gosh, like I can't be the only one that, that just didn't have a clue that this existed. Um, and so at, in that moment I said, all right, that's it. I'm gonna be a historian. I didn't, I didn't yet realize until the end of college that I was gonna be a historian in the museum world. I thought I was gonna be a, a high school teacher. And so my minor is actually in secondary education. Um, and for a hot second, I did teach. Um, I taught seventh grade and I taught 10th grade um, in Baltimore. And it was, it was kind of funny because um, I am a very short person in real life. I'm only five feet tall. And I, I look, yeah, I look tall on social media, but um, but I'm actually quite short. And so the kids used to always think I was like one of them. And <laughs> but um, but yeah. So uh, and while I'm on the story about just how I decided on museums as opposed to teaching or or to make the the career switch, if you will, my junior year of college, we had to do an internship in my department. And there was a whole list of places we could intern um, as an Africana studies major. BET headquarters in DC was one of the places. And I was determined. I said, I'm going to go to BET. I'm going to get on 106 and Park. And I'm going to do that. And typical me, back in the day, I was procrastinating. And all of the slots got filled to intern with BET. So I was crushed. The last little kind of opening that, that there was was for a small museum in Baltimore, the Maryland Historical Society. Um, and they needed like a, a student, a history major to like do some research, help design exhibits, things like that. Um, and also do some of their education programming. And I was like, well, I mean, I, I guess I've never worked in a museum. I don't know anybody who works in a museum. I guess I'll do that. Uh, and I signed up they selected me as, as an intern and that was just like, that was it. I'm like, I'm sold. I want to build exhibits and do that forever. Um, and it, it's so funny how like, you know, I tell you, if I had gotten that, that intern at BET, who knows where I'd be now, but, <laughs> um, you know, but it was just like, I loved it. I, you know, I remember working at that museum in Baltimore when we'd have, kids come in like young black children and they would look at me and say how much it meant to them to like see me being the person who helped design the exhibit or like how much it meant to them seeing someone who like looks like them um leading the tour things like that and uh it just it meant so much to me it meant so so much to me um and so now you know I, I love museums strictly. Like I like to say that I'm in the museum world, like specifically for black people. Like I am there telling our stories uh, and, and really trying to um, make our stories matter uh, because time and time again, this overall narrative of US history tells us that our history doesn't matter, that it should be cast to the wayside. Um, and so I'm just here, you know, one person trying to tell meaningful stories about the past. And you're doing an amazing job yeah. Um, yeah. to touch on a few things. Mm -hmm. I am huge on representation. Um, 
my friends honestly are probably sick of me saying that word <laughs> even like you said like you had a black it's it's not like black woman history yeah. professor. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not had a single black professor in all of my schooling K through 12 or under um, and although I know that like I am an engineer and that's a very white male dominated field mm-hmm. there's black women that are out there that are engineers I know that they are yes, so, there are that, my wife is actually an engineer. Um, Look at that. Engineer, but it, you're right. There's like, it's such a white male dominated field. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel I, I can make myself comfortable, you know, in certain spaces like that, because I've, I've grown to understand how to kind of make space for myself. Mm-hmm. But had I had, you know, a, a black person be a professor and someone that I could talk to and, connect with on that sort of level, I think would have been huge for me. Yeah, absolutely. So for those children to see a black tour guide, like I, when I go to museums, I can't recall ever having a black tour guide mm-hmm. throughout the museum or really in any like spaces. So like if hey, I yeah. grew up in that white dominated um, mm-hmm. area and it was just me. So I, I very much, I understand what you're saying. It's so cool that you kind of saw an area that you're like, hey, like it'd be really nice if our stories were shown. And then you took the step to actually do that because I feel like a lot of times people stop at, wow, so I should really, you know, talk more about Black people and our experiences. And then it just like kind of stops there. They do. And what's really interesting about that is, um, it's, it's so funny. I like to say that kind of the museum world before um, all of the George Floyd um, protests and everything like that last summer, before that, like, I think museums were just like a little bit like complacent when it comes to like Black history, unless it was specifically an African-American history museum. Um, but now with all of the things that happened last summer, they're like, okay, wait a minute, maybe we actually need to sit down and talk about this history and not just talk about it, but like actually have people on staff um, who are making these decisions. And, you know, I'll just be completely transparent. Many of the museums that I've worked at, I've, I've, you know, I've worked at um, big museums like Smithsonian, but I've also worked at a lot of small museums. Um, and with some of these smaller museums, I'm often the first, the only black curator Um, And for folks who kind of don't know much about the museum world, um, the curator is, is, I like to say the curator is, they're the person whose name is usually the most public facing outside of like the director. So the curator um, designs the exhibit or the show, they select the artifacts, they write all the information that goes with it. Um, So you're, the curator is usually the person whose name is like, um, like, if you think of a movie, like they're the starring role. Um, and then you have other roles like education department and collections manager who decides how to take care of an artifact. And so to be a curator in the museum world, a black curator is, oh gosh, it's just like, it's so much pressure because um, like your name is going out there publicly. And I cannot tell you how many times when I've been at certain museums um, as like the black curator, uh, and I say, hey, like we need to do inclusive exhibits, not just about black people, uh, about um, Asian communities, about Latino communities, about disabled communities, all sorts of stuff. Um, 
And people say, well, you just want to do it because you're black. Like, and I'm like, no, I want to do it because those stories matter. Um, or to the same notion uh, or to the same point where, you know, people might say, um, oh, you know, I've never, I would never would have realized that that particular artifact was offensive. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, you're like, you're a, a white woman. Why would you realize you know, and actually that, I, that's on my mind because that happened to me recently um, <laughs> where I had to inform colleagues that, hey, like this is actually racist. Like we should not be, um, we should not put that on display. Uh, but the, the museum world will, like I love museums with my whole heart, but I will say that, um, you know, when we have topics like, why aren't why isn't why aren't there more black people in museums as far as on the, the staffing side of things? Uh, and the reason being is that museums have a long way to go with like inclusion, diversity, who they allow into the doors, who they don't allow. Um, and there unfortunately is a, a very high turnover rate for for black and brown um, museum professionals simply for the fact that like it gets old very quickly after a while with all of the racism, the microaggressions, the, um, you know, it, it, it weighs on you. And I know for me, every now and again, like if I go to conferences uh, or, or things like that, um, and, you know, people like, what do you do, Camille? And I'm like, I'm like the curator. I like, I am the person like, like the museum that I was previously at, I was the director of curation, like, the person in charge. And um, somebody said to me, well, oh, um, you're not like a, a docent, you're not like a volunteer or like, and I'm like, no, like I am the person in charge. And just kind of, you know, making that assumption that I'm like an intern, not that there's anything wrong with an intern, but like respect my knowledge, respect what I'm bringing to the table. Um, so it's just like, you know, you, you deal with like things like that. Um, and it, but it keeps me, it keeps me here. I'm like, somebody's got to do this work and I don't mind, you know, bucking the system and like uh, challenging, you know, certain folks levels of comfort so that we can progress forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that's unfortunately such a normal thing for a lot of black women in any space that they find themselves in. It's almost as if you have to prove yourself just to say something um, and like that happens with me in engineering um thankfully my team currently is like very very cool but with undergrad it was like any group project I had to be in like I had to say something really really intelligent mm -hmm. listen to my ideas moving forward and it was like yeah okay <laughs> so funny because and that's exactly it like I have to or I, well, I put pressure on myself to automatically be like bigger, better, stronger than anybody else in the room. And I'm like, I shouldn't have to do that. Like, I shouldn't have to, like, it's so funny because um, my my therapist likes to say, like, carry yourself um, with, like, the attitude of a mediocre white man. Like, if they're not, if they're half-assing, like, you don't have to, like, go above and beyond. <laughs> and she's so right. Um, you know, why is it as Black women particularly that we have to, like, that we have this pressure placed upon us? Like, mm -hmm. if we're not smart enough to be there. Like, we're not. And it's like, no, like, we got in the store based on our hard work and our merits. Stop trying to do everything to, like, push us out. Mm -hmm. 
That's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> because yeah. I do, I jokingly talk to like my close friends about that because it's like a lot of white, well, white men, it's really white men can really yeah. do the absolute minimum, like very average at anything and still can look at me and try and like gatekeep whatever we're doing. Mm-hmm. What? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate, but I do, I do agree that although I, I put pressure on myself and I think a lot of black women do in general, um, mm-hmm. almost it's natural to, unfortunately, we do have to kind of take a step back and understand why we're doing it. Um, and if it's because we feel the need to, like from external sources, we need to mm-hmm. kind of dismantle that. If it's from an internal source, we of course have to unpack it a little bit more. Um, but to shift a little bit, um, I would love to hear about your work with Anti-Racism Daily. Um, again, you, of course, worked on the 28 um, Days of Black History. And I would love to know if you have, like, kind of, like, a favorite thing um, that you, you know, liked while you're working on it or a least favorite thing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, first, I will say that um, I was really excited when Nicole, the creator of Anti-Racism Daily, reached out to me. Um, Nicole and I were actually friends prior to um, Anti-Racism Daily. She, yeah, yeah, we actually, like, are friends in in real life. And um, she is, she's such a cool woman. She is I first came to know Nicole through her work with Yoga Journal Magazine, and um, she's a former yoga teacher. I don't, I don't believe she's still teaching these days, but she's a former yoga teacher, and um, essentially she'd done a cover shoot with Yoga Journal Magazine, and they put her picture up against another very well-known white yoga teacher, and they had their members vote on which cover they liked the best, uh, which it was like super, super racist. Um, and, you know, I just happened to, um, Nicole was doing like a, a tour around that time and she happened to be visiting DC where I was living. And I said, hey, you know, I saw how Yoga Journal treated you. Like that is just unacceptable. And I shared a little bit of my own experience in the yoga world because I, I also teach yoga. And we just like hit it off. Um, we, we like really hit it off. Um, and she's also, I like to say a pint-sized powerhouse because she's five feet tall as well. Um, and so, you know, we've been friends for uh, a, a while now. And when she reached out to me um, to do Anti-Racism Daily, one of her many, many projects, um, she, she always has her hands in multiple things, um, which I love. But she reached out to me um, with the idea to do sort of a 28-day virtual exhibit online of Black history, but really talking about Black history outside of the the names and figures that we often hear. So you always hear like MLK, uh, Rosa Parks, you know, you you hear those names time and time again. And, um, And so it was really important to Nicole to share stories of Black history that you may not have learned in school or um, stories that you might not realize we're like a part of Black history. And when I spoke with Nicole, I said, you know, absolutely, I'll do this 100%. Um, And I said, it's important to me to um, tell stories of queer folks, trans folks, um, disabled folks, women, um, I mean, all sorts, like, and I said, I also want to tell 
stories of people who might not necessarily have the, the name recognition, but are still very important um, to Black history in this country. And she was like, absolutely. Uh, and so really kind of how we set the project up was um, we selected uh, 28 different artifacts. And basically these were sources, um, videos, uh, songs, books, all sorts of things that people could actually, you know, print out, buy, watch. Um, and then um, and then I or Nicole or someone on our team, um, we write a little something about it uh, and say why we selected this, this artifact. Um, just to, you know, get people um, really engaged with, with material, because I think it's one thing to just sit back and like, you know, read on your phone, but when you're able to watch or you can buy a book, knowing that you're supporting um, a black bookstore, a black owned bookstore, for example, um, it, it just does something more. So for me, probably my favorite portion, probably favorite portion of the entire project. I love to research. So it was just nice to like, um, it was nice to like select things that are important to me. Oftentimes when I'm working for a museum, like even now I have to show what they have in their collection and like what the museum deems important. Um, but with this particular project, it was, it was me. Like, I'm like, this is what's important to me. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see, least favorite portion. Oh my gosh. It was like, where did the time go? Um, <laughs> when, it, when like, I, I swear it's like I blinked and it was, it was launch day. Um, I was, you know, Nicole, um, had shared this, I think on her Instagram a few weeks ago for Anti-Racism Daily, but we were so nervous the day before we launched um, that people wouldn't support, they wouldn't subscribe, they wouldn't like, we were terrified because the day before, I think the Anti-Racism Daily page might have had like two or 3,000 followers, like it wasn't really a big amount. Um, mm -hmm. And then we launched it and oh my goodness, we like people were emailing and reaching out and commenting and sharing and like all over. And it was the best thing that could have happened. Um, I mean, I, I will tell you, like I was so nervous for my portion of the work. I'm like, what if people hate what I've written? What if it doesn't resonate? What if they're like, oh my gosh, Camille, you didn't talk enough about X, Y, and Z. Like I was so nervous. Um, but then when people, you know, like yourself reached out and told me how much it meant to them, I was like, oh, yes. Um, it's awesome. Like yeah. fantastic, but continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so I was really nervous. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad it resonated with people and I am hopeful that, um, you know, another project like this will happen in the future. Uh, I would love to do something like this for, um, LGBT History Month, for example, like a 28 days virtual exhibit. Uh, so I would, I would love to do something like that. But I'm just glad that we were able to um, give this resource for free, um, and that people could could interact, could learn, um, and and just one more thing on on the exhibit. I really saw it for for myself as like a love letter, a love offering to the black community. Like that is who I did this for. It just so happens everybody else got to bear witness to it and learn. But like, I was like, no, this is like by us, for us, about us. And, um, and so I'm just, I'm glad that it like really, um, that it made people happy and, and think and, 
you know, engage in a way that they might not have otherwise engaged. So to wrap up, is there anything else that you want the viewers to know? Ooh, let's see. Um, I, gosh, what else? I don't know. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Curating Camille and Twitter. Um, I am always working consulting. I like to say that I'm very friendly. So if you ever have history questions, you want to know my journey, you want to know how to like make a career out of this, please reach out. Um, I, I do, I, I like to think of myself as someone who, um, you know, like I didn't get where I'm at on my own. So anytime I'm able to reach back and say like, hey, here's what I did. Um, you know, I'm happy to do that. And then as far as what's next for me, like on projects, I'll just share. Um, I am currently uh, filming webinars on um, black disability history in museums. So you'll have to follow my Instagram and my Twitter. Again, they're both at Curating Camille um, for when those go live, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. And, and yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's what's coming next. Awesome. I will put um, Camille's Instagram and Twitter in the description box. Um, again, Camille, it, this means a lot to me. Yes. Um, and I'm sure as you've been able to receive those words of affirmation over the all of Black History Month and hopefully before, yeah. what you're doing really means a lot. Um, and to be able to see people that look like me in my email every night has yeah. Fantastic. I actually read the emails right before I go to bed. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and like, I, once again, I'm glad you reached out. I like, I love when I meet other people with the same name as me because, um, yeah. like, quick funny story. Growing up, I hated my name. I wanted to be like, yes, I didn't want to be a Camille. Like, I was like, nobody has that name. I want a popular name. Like, yes. Like a, like a Britney or something like, like, like Emily. Yeah, <laughs> like, I never see my name on like keychains and you know like gas stations or souvenir shops. I was like, I never see my name. I don't like my name. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but then as I once I got older, I was like, I really like my name. Like mm -hmm. it's a good name. People will remember it. And um, and and yeah. So that was I was like, ah, she's got the same name as me. Not not really got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually funny because I think. Well, actually, no, I know you are the first Camille that I've met. Yeah. Um, so I'm very happy to share a name with you. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, and again, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. For watching. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. Um, please come back for weekly episodes on my YouTube or my Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you.